We are continuing in our series called uh, Ten Talks and kind of playing off the TED Talks idea. And when we first were announcing that we were going to do this, uh, some of you told me that you thought we were going to spend ten weeks discussing ten percent. You thought we were just going to talk about tithing for ten weeks. And so uh, you can be relieved that that's not the case. Uh, We're talking about the Ten Commandments. Uh, We're working our way through uh, the list of the Ten Commandments. We started first with a kind of introductory week, so this will be eleven weeks that we'll, we'll be walking through this. Uh, together, and I feel like the Ten Commandments have kind of gotten uh, a little bit of a bad rap. Our, our perspective of the law and commandments in general, I think, is is negative because we don't like to be told what to do. And it's almost like the the Ten Commandments were like, well, God's the same yesterday and today and forever. It's just He was kind of grumpy back then, you know, like. Like he, his blood sugar was low and he just needed to eat a Snickers bar, you know, can of corn, that kind of a thing. And then like, then he was in a better mood and sent us Jesus, right? He's, so he's the same. He just needed uh, to, to get his blood sugar up. And the fact is that that's not at all the case. That means we don't understand the heart of the Ten Commandments. It means we don't understand the, the nature of the Ten Commandments or the rest of the law or the rest of the commands. And we mentioned last week that when Jesus gave the two commands, love God and love your neighbor, that at that time uh, the, the Jewish people were following about a thousand different commands. And just in the first five books of the law, the Torah, the, the book of Moses, the law of Moses, that, that there's 613 commands. And then that's funneled down to these ten commands given here. But all of this actually started with one command. The very beginning of this whole story that we know as creation and humankind starts in perfection in the Garden of Eden, where there was only one do not. (laughs) There's only one command. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And even when there was only one do not, even then, the enemy got us to doubt. Is God really good? Is he trying to limit us? Is he trying to hold us back from what we really want? Is God basically like this cosmic killjoy, who's just out to make sure we don't actually have a good time or achieve everything that we really want to, is God a buzzkill, right? And, and he got Adam and Eve to believe that lie, to, to buy into that doubt when it's the exact opposite. As a matter of fact, Jesus shares the, the father heart of God in his own words in John chapter 10 verse 10 when he says, listen, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have life. And have it abundantly. You don't get more opposite than I've come to kill you and I've come to give you life, right? That's a pretty big gap. And he says, listen, the enemy, he, he wants to steal your joy. He wants to, to, to kill your hope. He wants to destroy your future. And I've come to offer you life. The question is, do we trust the Father heart of God? Do we trust him enough to really follow in his instructions? And that's the heart behind the Ten Commandments. So I encourage you, please, to grab your, your Bibles, if you would, please, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please keep that. Let that be our gift to you today. Uh, we'd love for you to hold on to that. But we invite any of our guests to join with us. Every week we have a tradition here. We hold up our Bibles and we say a creed together before we dive in that kind of speaks what we believe about this book and praise a prayer to, to ready our hearts. And so if that's where you are uh, on your spiritual journey, then join with us this morning as we hold up our Bibles and as we declare this together with conviction today. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory 
and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Please turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 57. Exodus chapter 20. We've just the last couple of weeks been walking uh, through this text, uh, trying to understand the heart of God for his people. And so we'll review those first three verses and then dive in. Verse 4, 5, and 6 is where we'll park this morning. Verse number 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am, I am, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. And I'm not just the Lord God, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He said, I'm the God who's delivered you, who's already set you free. And so we don't believe that studying these Ten Commandments are how we get out of Egypt or how we get out of slavery. We believe these are instructions for how people who've already been liberated by the grace of God can remain free. We've been set free to live free. That's the instruction and the heart here, that, that our obedience isn't, isn't so that we can get rewarded with salvation. It's that we've been given by grace. We've been given salvation, and it's the reason we seek to obey. Last week, we looked at the first command, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Not I want to be first place among a bunch of other gods. No, I'm not competing for your attention, your affection, or your allegiance in the same way that we don't think it is godly or honorable or healthy for a spouse to say to their spouse, hey, you're my favorite spouse among many. God's saying, I don't want to be your favorite point of worship. I want to be it. None other before me. No other gods before me. And the reason in his mercy he starts there with his people is because he knows that he alone can satisfy the longings of the human heart which he himself created so that he might be their source of satisfaction. So don't live for lesser things. Which is very much the the heart and the foundation of today's commandment. So much so uh, that I share with you, some people think really that the second commandment is actually really the same as the first commandment. They would say there's not ten commandments, there's only nine. Although I, I do think this is a, a second distinct command, but man, it really is closely related to the first. So we'll read these three verses together, verses 4, 5, and 6, and then circle back and walk through uh, verses 4 and then 5 and 6. So you shall, uh, this is commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, that's in earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. Here is the great irony. This command to make no other image is being given at the same moment in history where the people of God most clearly violate this command. So Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's having this encounter with God, getting these commands. Make no images. But here's the thing. God said a whole lot more in that conversation with Moses than just these Ten Commandments. As a matter of fact, if you want to read it, it's the whole way through Exodus chapter 32. And so the people of God are down at the base of the mountain going, okay, Moses, you've been up there for 12 chapters of the Bible now, right? You've been up there for a really long time. What's the deal? Where are you? He must have gotten lost. His GPS is broken. God consumed him like a fire. Something bad happened. 
So here's the deal. Aaron, you're, you're the, the number two leader here. We want you to set us up an idol. And they, they make this golden calf and have this horrible expression of idol worship while God is saying, hey, don't do all that. <laughs> like literally what they're doing right now as I'm speaking. And the fact is, for those of us who've traveled around uh, the undeveloped world, or the third world, right, we've seen old-fashioned idolatry just like the people of God were seeing at this time in history. Most of the places I have visited in the world, you can see straight up idol worship, right? As a matter of fact, if you've been to a place of Hope Africa, you cannot walk down uh, the, the main road to get down to the, the football field where the kids go play soccer without walking by this little creepy thing in this little uh, shack, this little hut uh, as you walk down the road and there's like blood on it and it's weird looking. And I've asked multiple people in the village, so what's the story here? Like who takes care of this? And no one knows. It's just like this creepy thing. And so uh, I'm really full of the Holy Spirit, but I still walk on the other side of the road and I walk by that thing. It kind of creeps me out. You know what I mean? Um, And even when we were in China last year as a group, I was shocked in a country that advanced that even when you go out in the rural areas, you see spiritism and you see old fashioned idolatry. I I didn't expect to see it there. then of course we have our missionary partners in India Do you know in India there are around 33 million different gods that have names, that have statues, that have little carved faces? 33 million gods. That's one Indian god for every 10 Americans. It's it's amazing to me. They've kind of made a god out of everything. Probably the the clearest expression I've ever seen of this was was when I was in Haiti. And and we had a a witch doctor... um, write curses on the ground that we had to to drive over to get up the mountain to the orphanage where we were visiting and um, it it was just blatant in in your face and i've shared this story some of you have heard this before but uh, me and my brother greg were out of the compound later than we should have been because we are dumb and uh, didn't pay attention to the time and they were like well whatever you do make sure you're back in the compound before dark and so of course we were far from the the compound at dark and uh, so we're driving back as quickly as we can and we're on this this six-wheel ATV, which is basically like a militarized golf cart, right? So there's, there's no windshield, there's no doors, it's open air, we're very exposed. And we find ourselves driving through the dead center of a voodoo processional. And if you don't understand voodoo, I mean, it's the blatant, straight-up worship of Satan and evil spirits. And these people were dressed super freaky, and they're chanting this creepy stuff, and they have, like, torches, and they're, like kind of lunging at us and touching us and tugging on us and stuff. It's the most scared I've ever been in my life. I was pushing my brother out at them, saying, take him, he's twice the size of me. And, I mean, it was just super creepy, man. And I'll I'll never forget the overwhelming presence of evil there. And when we read this command, we might start thinking that. And the problem with picturing that is, is we'll, we'll be tempted to believe that idol worship is reserved for undeveloped people. People who, who aren't as advanced as us. That we're not that way. And so I want to share an incredible story that, that I read from, from Pastor Mark Driscoll. He talked about being in India with the 33 million gods. And, and when we think of this whole idea of having no images before us, right? Picture that idea of 33 million images, you know? And he was in this one small little village where they took him to visit a temple to the local god or goddess there in that little village. And that afternoon he was going to be speaking at a pastor's conference. Pastors had had walked for days with with their wives and families to come to this pastor's conference. But in the meantime, 
They want to show him what their culture is like, right? And he looks inside this little temple, it's just a hut, and he said there was blood everywhere, chicken blood, feathers and like chicken parts, and it smelled awful and candles lit. And by his own testimony, he said he remembered thinking in that moment, get me out of here. (laughs) Like, I want to go back to America. This is freaky and creepy, right? And so he gets to this pastor's conference, and he's meeting these spirit-filled believers, man, who are just so full of the love of God. And one particular pastor's wife he met who grew up as a very typical um, Indian following after Hinduism and then came to faith in Christ and had this powerful testimony, and he's talking with her. And it ends up coming out in the conversation, she has been to America. And he's asking her all these questions. How long ago was that? And what did you think? And And then he asks her this, and it was so profound. I thought, man, that's a great place for us to start our conversation today. He asked her, do you think you'll ever come back to America again? And her response was, I don't think I'll ever return to America because I can't stomach the idolatry. A lady who lives in a country with 33 million gods said, I don't know if I can go back to America because there's so much idolatry. And the fact is, our idolatry might look very different than a wooden carved idol, but it's no less powerful to rule and reign in our hearts. Driscoll went on to talk about how in many of those third world uh, cultures, people will carry their version of their God on their person at all times, either hanging around their neck or in their pocket, right? And I love what he said. He said, we're not that way, but we have something we worship in our pockets, right? You drop your phone today and it doesn't work and just see how much of your heart it owns, right? And if you visit a typical third world culture, you'll see that their common area of their little hut or their little house will center around, will all face a little altar where their God is. In the same way that we arrange all the furniture in our living room, To face a television. And in every little village, there's a little temple to make sure that they can accessibly get to the place where their worship lies. They can get to where their gods are in the same way that there's a coffee shop on every corner and a shopping center on every street. And in those countries, in the in the metropolitan areas, there's the big fancy temples where huge crowds can gather, much like our stadiums, right? Where we go and scream and yell and paint our bodies and eat meat and shout. Right? Or where we gather in those same stadiums for a concert, or we're singing along and shouting with the person on the stage. Our idolatry just looks different. A healthy definition for idolatry comes from several hundred years ago from the great reformer Martin Luther. He said this He said, That to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. That to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is our God. And from that definition, what we understand is everybody worships, not just religious people, Because we're all prone to want to assign worth and value to something. We're all prone to want to give our hearts over to something. And what I mentioned last week is is many of those things that we end up clinging to and, and entrusting our hearts to are actually good things. We just turn them into God things. 
and a good thing that becomes a God thing is a, a deadly thing. I especially watch young people do this in relationships, right? Like that, that girlfriend or that boyfriend, all of a sudden, which is a good thing, becomes the only thing that rules and reigns in their heart, right? Like this is what I'm living for. And we use language like the hallmark language or the, the romantic song language. is really worship language. You're what I live for. You mean more to me than anything else in the world, right? We, we give our hearts fully away to those things. Having a career isn't a bad thing. Until it owns our hearts. Until that's what we live for. Having a healthy relationship, that's a good thing until it defines us and owns us. Trying to be healthy is a good thing until it becomes idolatrous. What we're prone to do, unfortunately, is we take these good gifts from the Creator and we end up idolizing the created instead of the one who created them. Infatuated with the creation instead of the Creator. And here's what's heartbreaking about that. Idolatry always leads to slavery. Whatever we worship will end up owning our hearts. And the problem with that is, idols always lie. They always promise us something they can't actually deliver. They promise a level of satisfaction and a level of peace that they can't actually deliver. All they're designed to do is to disappoint I love how the psalmist describes it. They have mouths but cannot speak and eyes but cannot see and ears but cannot hear. You know why? Because they're not actually real. They can't deliver on any of their promises. And yet our heart so often clings to them and entrusts itself to them. And because they lie and because they can't deliver, this then is true. And I love this quote. From the great Jonathan Edwards, he said, One of the great evils of idolatry is that if we idolize, we must also demonize. When we place something on a pedestal it did not earn and then it disappoints us as it will, we end up hating it and resenting it. Again, I, I use the illustration of the young people on our campus who I, I watch their relationships, right? This is the most important person in my life. And then they texted some other guy and they're like, you're dead to me. Right? He, he, he looked at another girl. He's the most horrible human being in the universe. It's like, what are you talking Yesterday you were naming your children. What, what are you talking about? That fast. And we think, oh, that's so immature. We don't do that anymore. Really? This promotion, this will satisfy me now. This raise will finally be at peace financially. We end up idolizing these things that don't turn out, and then we end up resenting our job. <laughs> we, end up re- re- we think this spouse, man, this marriage is going to be the one that actually works, and then they end up being just as human as us. She's just fallen as us. And we end up resenting them. Whatever we idolize, we will eventually demonize because every single thing we idolize other than Christ will disappoint us. It is inherently incapable of satisfying the longings of our heart. We place any of those things on an altar that they cannot ever live up to. Another reformer, John Calvin, said this about our hearts. He said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. I love that picture, man. That our heart is just cranking out an assembly line of something different to try to satisfy us other than God. That it's this little 
little sweatshop on a deadline with a quota man just cranking out terrible things that we keep chasing after other than the God of the universe. And, and I don't think this factory ever shuts down until we finally put off this vessel of clay and put on incorruptible. I believe we will battle that factory as long as we live. Because our hearts want something tangible. The thing about an idol is you can touch it and see it and sort of interact with it. It, 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 it's visible, and our faith is so spiritual. So we want to cling to the right here, the right now. And unfortunately, those things will do nothing but disappoint us. And the whole rest of the list of the Ten Commandments come back to this idea, this, this, this idea of these idols that the factory keeps cranking out. Because what, what we realize is, When you look at the rest of the list, we don't actually have a word problem. We have a worship problem. We don't actually have sexual sin problems. We have a worship problem. We don't have a covetousness problem. We have a worship problem. We don't have a problem with being in control and not resting. We have a worship problem. We think we're the center of the universe. We don't have a a problem with anger and hate. We have a problem with worship. Every problem ends up finding its source back with, what are we truly worshiping where does our heart cling and to what has it entrusted itself what i want us to do before we move on from from verse four is i want us to just kind of zoom in on the word image for just a minute and and i want to sit in this this idea and and i I gotta confess i i've known the ten commandments since i was so little that i don't remember when i learned them you know what I mean when I say that? Like I, growing up as a preacher's kid and growing up in church and going to Christian school, like I was taught to memorize this list, which I probably would have gotten them out of order, but I, I, taught, I learned them so long ago I can't remember when I learned them. But I never noticed the word image there in light of our last sermon series, Truth and Love, where we parked again and again and again on this idea of image. I believe the reason that it offends God so deeply. And the reason he pleads so strongly that we not chase his image in a lesser image is because he understands the value of the truth that he's already placed his image on us. Genesis 127, the verse we looked at almost every week this fall. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. God is saying, if you could understand the implications... (laughs) of how valued you are, that you are my image bearers. You don't have to chase after that somewhere else. That's already how I value you. And no other idol that we chase after will value us that way, will honor us like that. We, we learned that in, in biblical times, historically, that kings wanted their image to be everywhere in their kingdom. They would have statues of their image, that they would have banners bearing their image. They would make sure their image was on their currency of the day. And here's the thing. I believe the whole universe and everything in it is the kingdom of God. And he's placed his image on you. Isn't that incredible? You're the place where he's displaying his glory clearest and greatest in this creation. And when we find our identity there, we no longer have to seek identity or value in these lesser things. Understanding. The privilege of being image bearers sets us free. 
from living for lesser images, let alone creating them, (laughs) trying to manufacture them. He's placed his image on his people, and that's us. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't perfectly bear his image. That's not true. I do know that about you. Neither do you. (laughs) Because none of us do. Because at the end of the day, just like the whole rest of this list, this actually all points to Jesus. And it's all about him. The Apostle Paul told the church in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He came and lived this life. What, what Jesus' life was is living a perfect, image-bearing existence. He perfectly bore the image of God so that he could be the sacrificial death to pay for all the ways we didn't perfectly bear his image. So that in his resurrection we could walk in new life now, free from the, the obligation of the law, but just for the joy of obedience. He's the image of the He is what, what John's Gospel says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the image of the invisible God. It really is all about Jesus. And He's the only one worthy of our allegiance, in our affection, in our worship. For just a minute, I want us to look at, at verses 5 and 6 make two observations. The first one's really quick because we talked about some of this last week. Verse number five, he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Here's why. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And and I want to park there for just a second and say, God is not jealous of you. When we think of jealousy, we think of being jealous of someone who has something that we want or that we think we deserve. And here's the deal. I don't know how to tell you this any more lovingly than this. You aren't that big a deal. God has never looked at any of us and gone, wow, must be nice. Never. He's not jealous of us. He loves us to such a degree that he's jealous for us. Last week I used the illustration of a spouse saying, hey, I want to have these other relationships in our marriage. Would that be okay? The answer is no, because we're committed to one another. Don't pollute this relationship with other loves. That's being jealous for your affection, for your heart. He's a jealous God because he's a loving God. But then he says this, there's both a warning and a promise here. If we will serve these lesser idols, he says he'll visit the iniquity of fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Such strong language, hate, right? But showing steadfast love, unending love, enduring love, faithful love to thousands. It's in the Hebrew that speaks back to that generational warning to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This beautiful warning and promise that that is contrasted as sharply as love and hate. 
which Jesus made sense of that for us. He told us that that's how it works in the economy of God. You either love him or you hate him. There is no middle ground. And I know for many of us, most of our days are just kind of in between, right? I'm not really all that in love with God today, but I don't hate him. And he says there is no such thing. There is no neutral ground. We either love him or we hate him. And if we love him, Jesus would say in the upper room, then obey my commandments. And he says there's this generational idea where, man, if if fathers don't teach their children to love God, then by default they won't teach the next generation to love God. This is like the like father, like son, like mother, like daughter idea. And, and many in this room would say, hey, that's my story. My, my parents didn't know God and never taught me the truths of God. I didn't come to know Him until later in life. And, and their parents never taught them to know God and to love God and to follow God. And I just want to say to some of you, we have watched you break that generational trend. We've watched God graft a new branch onto your family tree of faith. We honor and celebrate that alongside you. You are changing a generation for the glory of God. And with that legacy, there's a promise for a thousand generations. By the way, back to that idea that somehow the commands of God are are just the grumpy side of God. Notice that the punishment is for up to four generations, but the blessing is for a thousand generations. Even in his warnings, he's merciful. He wants to bless his children. He wants them to flourish. That's why he says, listen, love the only one who's worthy. Trust the only one who's worthy of trust because my way is best. Man, don't you want that to be our legacy, church? Some of you have that legacy. You inherited that legacy. Some of you would say, listen, my parents... They weren't perfect, but they loved God. They stayed married. They were faithful to the Lord because their parents taught them the truths of God. And and from what I've heard, their parents pointed them to knowing God and loving God. Some of you inherited that legacy. And my plea to you this morning is, man, let's maintain that focus. Let's maintain that mission. To every mom and dad here today, I want you to think about this. What if? What if, if Jesus doesn't come back, What if two generations from now your grandkids are sitting in a room like this talking about the Ten Commandments and they were to say, my grandparents were faithful to point us to love God and to trust Him enough to follow after Him. Now that's a legacy worth pouring our lives out for. A legacy with a promise. That is what God desires for his people. So do we love him enough? Do we trust him enough? So back to that visit in Haiti, we had gone up the mountain after the scary voodoo processional the night before, after a witch doctor drawing curses on the ground while we're driving up. And we get to this orphanage, this Blake talked about a refuge in our call to worship today is a refuge that inside this compound all of a sudden was the presence of God manifest in this godly widow who's poured her life out for the sake of these orphans and 
we're there together in this compound and we're nearing our time to leave and I walk towards the gate and I notice in the next mountain in the distance there's a cliff with a little something sticking up in the air on it. I said, what is that? That's really weird looking. And she begins to cry. She said, that is an altar. She said, at least once a year we hear the stories of a kid who's gone missing in the village. And a few days later, we'll see smoke coming up from that altar. Here we are in the 21st century, still practicing child sacrifice. But the promises of God remind us of something beautiful that's unlike any other other God we could bow down before. Idols demand that we sacrifice our children for them. But the true God sacrifices himself for our children. (laughs) He lays down his life so that a blessing can travel for a thousand generations. Not demanding we sacrifice our children, but laying down his own life of his own accord joy set before him. This is the love of God that stirs us to love him enough and trust him enough to follow his instructions.